scary girl. Hi, everybody. Hey, everyone. I'm Stephanie. And I'm Sarah. And, and this, this is... Dead Time Stories. A weekly podcast where Sarah and I get together to talk about ghost stories, true crime, conspiracy theories, cults, supernatural, paranormal, and just whatever weird, eerie, spooky, strange thing it is that we feel like talking about that week. Why is that, Sarah? Because it's our show and not yours. Isn't that crazy? It's so crazy. Oh, my God. I feel oh my like gosh. my microphone just woke up. Like, in the beginning, when I will see how it sounds in editing, but in the beginning with the intro, it was like, your audio is real low. And then when it was like, why is that, Sarah? Because it's our show and not yours. My mic was like, fuck yeah, it is. I'm up now. Bitch. Bitch. This fucking dead time stories. It. You better get the fuck up. Get up. Get up now. Get on up. Get on up. Sarah, can you believe that 2020 is almost over? We're in that final month. We're in the home stretch, y'all. It's December. Can you believe how positive and hopeful we were at the beginning of this year? Oh, my. I don't want to think about it. We were at the beginning of this year. We were planning our first live live show. show. Yeah, I know. (laughs) I know. We started out 2020 so strong. We had our New Year's Eve party at Mary Angela's. We were riding high. Everything was great. And then the world went. It went whoopsie do it all. It Just shit on it. us. You know, flipped it and reversed it. It's your and then shit on ramp. it. And then shit. On right it. on it. Just took a big old dump. Right on it. Right on it. I... <laughs> what? <laughs> I was going to say I took a big old dump the other day. <laughs> oh, you, now this is a podcast where we tell each other about our bowel movements? No, but that's why I stopped. That's why I stopped saying it. You could cut it. <laughs> <laughs> You know I'm not. That's why I know you're not. That's why I started laughing and I stopped. And I knew I shouldn't have continued the thought. You know there's going to be like, underscoring what? of like a toilet flushing. It was really, a really long poop the other day. Like, I don't mean I was on the toilet a long time. I mean, I got up and it was one long poop. Oh, that means you're healthy. Like, your digestive system is working the right way. Yes, because I, shit you not, pun intended, I read somewhere from, like, um, a gastroenterologist or, like, a bowel doctor that you know that your digestive system is working the best because a normal poop should be anywhere between six to nine inches long and, like, the diameter, I want to say she said, of either a dime or a nickel. And like solid, a dime doesn't seem healthy. That might a be right. A nickel. Right. I was just thinking of what you're squeezing out of your butthole, but I know that when it's a poop, the butthole does what it wants to do, as opposed to like goes, right. accepting There's something. That you're like, how? How does my butt? How did my butt squeeze that out? It'll let out a lot. <laughs> it doesn't want to let things how, in. Doesn't want to let it back in. It's like a one way down there. Um. So yeah, you had a really healthy poop. That reminds me of the first time I peed clear. And I called my mom freaking out because I was like, What's Mom, my pee is clear. What's wrong with me? And my mom was like, no, that's really You're good. fucking hydrated. Like, what do you mean? Yeah. My mom was like, no, if your pee is clear, that means like you're you're accepting lab nutrients. You're just letting go extra fluid. Like there's nothing in it. It's just. You're just yeah, hydrated. Yeah, that's good. 
I was like, I was concerned. I thought I was like sick because my pee was clear. You're like, I don't understand. I guess, you know, come to think of it, this is the first time in two months I didn't need asparagus. So I guess this kind of took me off guard at being clear and and non-pungent. These conversations that we have remind me of this book I had when I was a kid. I loved it. Uh, It was called Grossology. And it had um, some fake vomit on the cover that you yes. could peel off and play with. I remember that. And it was all about how different things in your body work. So how like pooping works, how pee works, how vomit works, how snot works. Like just how all of those fluids in your body, like why they're there and the jobs that they do and how they're made. So you I was really fascinated by it. So you're telling me that you read that book as a child but didn't retain the knowledge enough that when you were older and you peed clear, you were like, this is normal. Instead, you were like, I'm dying. I don't know dying. if that was a specific thing in it. I mean, it talked about how your pee is made, but I don't know if it clarified that, like, your pee is... It, it was, you know, like, light yellow is normal, but, like, if your pee is, like, dark yellow or brown, like, you're dying. You're not dying. If there's <laughs> red, please go see a doctor. If there's red, right. Well, the brown was the red. was why it, was it would blood. be red. <laughs> right, it was be blood. Oh, these informative conversations we have as banter on dead time stories. It's, don't you love the show? Isn't don't this exactly? I mean, when we talk about us being two star content, we mean that number two star content. We're number two star content. Yeah, yeah. girl. I like that. I saw where you were going with <laughs> it. I go. was really excited. Yeah. 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 You're welcome. You're welcome. Thanks. Um, I was going to say one good thing that I guess it didn't start this year, but it's happening tomorrow is that it's Charlie and I's one-year anniversary, which is crazy, crazy, because it feels like just yesterday when I met his dad. Right, I was going to say when you tried to smoke his dad. I Okay, no. (laughs) It was uh, a uh, missed, I almost said a missed connection. It was a misconception. <laughs> no, so yeah, we're recording this on Monday. Tuesday is Charlie and I's anniversary, and this comes out on Thursday. So when he listens, happy anniversary, babe. One happy year anniversary. down. Thank you. <laughs> and you're like counting down to what? Just wait. <laughs> You'll find out. You'll find out. Cash me outside. How about that? <gasps> Cash me outside. How about that? How about that? <sighs> well, hey, Sarah. <laughs> guess what else I got to how about? Since we're segueing into things. How about what? How about, Tell me about it. we've had some requests to bring Leslie back. Have we? We have. Some or uh. one. One. But I was going to make it sound like there's more than one so that she would feel more special. <laughs> Our listener Barbara said, please bring back Leslie. And we listened. You got it, Barbara. You, we do. You got it, Barbara. We listen, Barbara, because you fucking listen, Barbara. Yes. And you have an opinion, and it's valid. And I want to validate that opinion by bringing Leslie back. I think we can do it. Yeah. Right? I think we can do it. Let's do it right now. Let's do it. Hey, Sarah. Hey, Stephanie. Hey, hey Leslie. Leslie. Y'all, Y'all ready, ready to, to talk, talk about, about some, some ghosts? ghosts? Y'all ready to talk about some ghosts? I love it. I missed you, Leslie. I I forgot how much I missed you. Welcome back, friend. 
Good idea, Barbara. It's been our longest running. I don't even know if it's a bit anymore, but y'all ready to talk about some ghosts and Leslie Jordan because that's been from episode two. Yeah, y'all ready to talk about some ghosts. That's been our, yeah, that's been our catchphrase. That's how you know it's time for us to move from the banter into the stories because that's what we say. Yeah. Because, well, um, even when we're not talking about ghosts, but. It's just, you know what, you all get it. We get it. Buy our merch that says it. Stephanie, what are you talking about this week? Sarah, I'm talking about the Summerton Man. Are you familiar with the Summerton Man? I mean, only as much as so many people can be familiar because he's like not identifiable, right? Correct. <laughs> That's I basically what I know. Yeah. Well, then I guess I'm not telling you anything new. You want to talk about your story this week? Oh my God. Tell me about the Summerton Man. Did he die in so wintertime? It wasn't the summertime, man. <laughs> He's not the summertime, man. It's the Summerton, man. Summerton is S-O-M-E-R-T-O-N. Well, summertime would have been of, more cheerful. It's the name of the park he was found in. Are you sure it wasn't Summertime Park? Because that also sounds summertime. better. <laughs> no. It's not the summertime park. Fine. Tell me about the Salmontine, some whatever his name is. That man, that dude, that guy. He's a, he's a guy who they found his body on the beach. Shut <laughs> up. <laughs> All right. So, on the, there was a body who was found on the beach, right? It was December 1st, 1948, around 6.30 a.m., Sarah's like trying to catch her, her breath I right now. I, like I want to make so many more snarky remarks and I'm just not going to because this is your story. So please tell your story. Thank you. Like, you're welcome. <laughs> That's why I just said it. All right. So he was found on a nice summer day on the beach. Let's go. No. <laughs> it's December, you bitch. I don't know. It's, but is December summertime in Australia? Don't they have like the opposite seasons? I don't know. Let's ask Chris Lilly. I'm well. I was gonna ask Google <laughs> when is winter in Australia. I think we might have some Australian yeah. listeners. When yeah, then they'll be excited to know that I did my research just now. Just now on and <laughs> just this part. Winter in Australia is like June, July, August. I wasn't wrong, and I wasn't wrong so, either. It was a summer day. So it was a <laughs> Summer day in Australia. You're absolutely right because uh, it says this year specifically, summer starts Tuesday, December 1st, runs through February 28th, and December 1st is when this man's body was found. First day of summer. Crazy. Wow. Wow. Well, so the the Summerton man, aka the Summertime man. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I hope someone goes on Wikipedia and changes it. <laughs> and then they have to put that footnote in the bottom that uh, no, that marks us as a reference. See, he is also known as the Summertime man, according to this one podcast I listened to. That has two stars and five listeners. <laughs> Link below. <laughs> Note number two. <laughs> oh, okay. So his body was found on December 1st. <laughs> We've gotten two sentences in your story. I know. It's terrible. 
So it was discovered on the beach of Somerton Park, which is in Australia. It's in South Australia, Australia. <laughs> you know, like New York, New York. Got it. Got Except it. it's a state in the country, not a city in the state. And <laughs> I'm such an asshole. <laughs> so he was lying on his back and there was like a like most men. what they call I don't know. There's what they call a seawall, right? Which is like a wall between the beach and like the street. Mm -hmm. And he was like laying with his head against the seawall. And apparently a ton of people passed this dude and they all just thought he was asleep. He's just a homeless dude asleep? No, he wasn't homeless. He was pretty well dressed. He was in a suit. He had his legs crossed. So he was laying with his legs crossed. A search of his pockets revealed an unused second-class rail ticket from Adelaide, which was the nearest city, to Henley Beach. So a bus, t- or a rail ticket out of Adelaide, but it was unused because he was found here. Mm-hmm. A bus ticket that may or may not have been used. A U.S. manufactured narrow aluminum comb. A hacked empty packet of juicy fruit chewing gum. An Army Club cigarette packet, which contained seven cigarettes of a different brand. Huh. And a quarter full box of Bryant and May matches. So they were trying to figure out who this guy was. Uh, They interviewed a bunch of people who had passed him on the beach the night before. And throughout the morning, there was one couple who said they thought they saw him move. Um, They they weren't, like, definitely sure. They were just pretty sure they saw him move. But most everybody was like, nah, just he was there, like, sleeping. They said they thought he switched positions. Oh, okay. but but they didn't see he didn't like get up and go anywhere. Yeah. But everybody else was like, nope, I just thought he was asleep. He just he just laid there. He wasn't doing anything. It makes me wonder how many potential of what I thought were just sleeping homeless people who might have been like dead people might have been dead. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he didn't have any identification on him and even his clothes. All of the tags had been taken out of his clothing. So they weren't even really sure, right, like where his clothing came from, where this guy came from. According to the pathologist John Burton Cleland, the man was of Britisher, that's in quotation, appearance, uh, thought to be aged 40 to 45. He was in top physical condition. He was 180 centimeters, which is about 5'11". With gray eyes, fair to fair to ginger-colored hair, slightly gray around the temples, with broad shoulders, a narrow waist, hands and nails that showed no signs of manual labor, big and little toes that met in a wedge shape like those of a dancer or someone who wore boots with pointed toes, and pronounced high calf muscles consistent with people who regularly wore boots or shoes with high heels or performed ballet. He was dressed in a white shirt, a red, white, and blue tie, brown trousers, socks and shoes, a brown knitted pullover, and fashionable gray and brown double-breasted jacket reportedly of American tailoring. All labels of his clothes had been removed, and he had no hat, which was unusual for 1948, or wallet. He was clean-shaven, carried no identification, which initially led police to believe he had committed suicide. Finally, his fingerprints and even his dental records did not match to any known person what and you said this was 1940 48 this was the end of 1948 december 1948 there was nothing on his dental records that's crazy no records 
Are you so, sure they also didn't check the inside of his underwear? Because his initials might have been stitched in there. Like, are you sure they checked all of it? Well, like, if he was going to camp, they might have been thrown off because they were like, it says Tuesday, but it's Thursday underwear. But So, so something comes, there's some more evidence that comes up later. We're not done. But they still don't know who this guy is. Yeah. So, they did an autopsy to try and figure out how he died. They said the heart was of normal size in every normal way. Small vessels not commonly observed in the brain were easily discernible with congestion. There was congestion of the pharynx and the gullet, which was covered with a whitening of superficial layers of mucus with a patch of ulceration in the middle of it. The stomach was deeply congested. There was congestion in the second half of the duodenum. There was blood. I think it's the duodenum. Yes, the duodenum. Thank you. There's blood mixed with food in the stomach. Both kidneys were congested and the liver contained a great excess of blood in its vessels. The spleen was strikingly large, about three times normal size. There was destruction of the center of the liver lobules revealed under the microscope, acute gastritis, hemorrhage, extensive congestion of the liver and spleen, and the congestion of the brain. So his shit was just all fucked up. His stuff was all like, yeah, like swollen and stuffed up and fucked up. So the autopsy also showed that the man's last meal was a pasty, which I double checked because I was like a pasty like a stripper wears. But that's the name of a really specific British pastry that's like a meat pie. I was like, like the only thing in his stomach was he ate a pasty? His last few hours must have been wild. Fucked up. Which he ate three to four hours before his death, but fa- uh, tests failed to reveal any foreign substance in the body. Because originally they thought he had to be poisoned because he didn't have any, like, outward marks. No he didn't look like he'd been hit, beat, yeah. stabbed, shot. Like, none of that had happened to him. So they were like, maybe he was poisoned. And then they were like, it doesn't seem like he was poisoned, but his shit's all fucked up and we don't know what, what happened. <laughs> The pathologist, Dr. Dwyer, concluded, I am quite convinced the death could not have been natural. The poison I suggested was a barbiturate or a soluble hypnotic. Although poisoning remained a prime suspicion, the pasty was not believed to be the source of poison. Other than that, the coroner was unable to reach a conclusion as to the man's identity, cause of death, or whether the man had uh, seen alive at Somerton Beach on the evening of the 30th was the same man as nobody had seen his face at the time. The body was then embalmed... On the 10th of December, 1948, after the police were unable to get a positive identification, the police said that this was the first time that they knew that such an action was needed um, because they could not, like, find, like, literally anything out about this dude. Yeah. The next, I say the next year, but it's the next month, right? Because it's January. Yeah. So January 14th, 1949, they find a brown suitcase at the Adelaide Railway Station. Mary Angela is calling me. <laughs> uh, that's not where I left off. Suitcase. That's where I left yes. off. <laughs> so, the next month... January 14th, 1949, staff at the, excuse me, 
Staff at the Adelaide Railway Station, which was like maybe like a few kilometers away, they discovered a brown suitcase with its label removed, um, which had been checked into the station cloakroom after 1130 or after 11 a.m. on the 30th of November, 1948. So that would have been the night before, right? Because his body was found on the 1st of December. So it was checked in that night and it had been left there this entire time. So it was believed that the suitcase was owned by the man that was found at the beach because he also had that ticket. That was a ticket to leave from that train station, but it was an unused ticket. And this is definitely so remember, before the, if you see something, say something, because that bag was left unattended for a while. Well, it was checked in, so I don't know if it was, Still. like, he checked the bag, you know what I mean, to, like, travel with it and then, like, left or what, right? Um, so that's weird. But, again, just like all his clothes, the tags were gone mm-hmm. from the suitcase. So that was like that, too. Inside the suitcase, there was a red-checked dressing gown, a size 7 pair of red felt slippers, four pairs of underpants, pajamas, shaving items, a light brown pair of trousers with sand in the cuffs, an electrician screwdriver, a table knife cut down into a a short, sharp instrument, a pair of scissors with sharpened points, a small square of zinc thought to be used as a protective sheath for the knife and scissors, and a stenciling brush used by the third officers of merchant ships for stenciling cargo. So... They were like, what the fuck is all this? It's really basic, boring stuff. Like, I guess other than the Basic, weapons, boring stuff, but like tools. Like a lot of tools, right, that could be used as weapons. Who knows? So, um, people, they were still investigating this um, for months. They, like, didn't let this go. And an inquest into the man's death was conducted by the coroner, Thomas Erskine Cleland, commenced a few days after the body was found, but they gave up, basically, um, in June of 1949. So they gave it a good, like, six months, mm-hmm. and they were like, I think we're done here. We can't waste Cleland- any time on this. We got other people dying on beaches, like... We can't find anything. People have come to see this man. We took, they took a cast of his body before they buried him so that people could come look at it and see if, like, hey, does this look like a dude that you know? And, like, people were coming from around the world to come see this dude and figure out if (laughs) if they knew him, right? Yeah. And, um, so, Cleland was an investigating pathologist, and he re-examined the body and made a number of discoveries. So he noted that the man's shoes were remarkably clean. They appeared to have been recently polished, rather than being in the state of somebody who had, like, walked on the beach all night. Mm -hmm. Like, his shoes weren't all sandy. They weren't super worn in. Mm -hmm. They were, like, fresh, right? And if they thought that he had been poisoned, right, there was no sign on the beach of, like, vomiting or convulsions or of a person, like, reacting to poison. So those things led him to believe that the body was brought there. Like, he wasn't he was on the... Like, he wasn't... already. Yeah. He was dead already before he was brought to the beach. He speculated that none of the... That none of the witnesses could possibly identify the man that they saw the previous night as being the same person discovered in the morning. And there remained the possibility that the man had died somewhere else and been dumped. 
He stressed that this was purely speculation, as all the witnesses believed it was definitely the same person as the body that was in the same place, lying in the same distinctive position. He also found there was no evidence as to who the deceased was. So, Cindric Stanton Hicks, a professor of physiology and pharmacology at the University of Adelaide, testified that a group of drugs, variants of a drug in that group he called number one, and particular number two, were extremely toxic (laughs) in a relatively small oral dose that would be extremely difficult, if not impossible, to identify, even if it had been suspected in the first instance. He gave Cleland a piece of paper with the names of the two drugs, which were entered as Exhibit C-18. The names were not released to the public until the 80s, as that time they were quite easily procurable by the ordinary individual from a chemist without the need to give a reason for the purchase. Um, the drugs were later publicly identified as Digitalis and Uabane, both of which are a cardinalinolide-type cardiac glycoside. That's a mouthful. I can't talk about. Yeah. It's a mouthful, right? It's all drugs for your uh, for your body. But Hicks noted the only fact not found in relation to the body was the evidence of vomiting. So if he was poisoned, a lot of people who get poisoned, right, your body tries to reject it, tries to make you throw it up. So that would be a sign that, like, your body was reacting to it. But his body didn't have any signs that that had happened. He still had food in his stomach from a few hours before his death. He then stated its absence was not unknown, but that could not make a frank conclusion without it. So Hicks stated that if death had occurred seven hours after the man was last seen to move, right, by the people who were like, I think I saw him switch positions, right, it would imply a massive dose that could still have been undetectable. It was noted that the movement seen by witnesses at 7 p.m. could have been the last convulsion preceding death. Early in the inquiry, yeah, like, like oh, maybe look, they saw him give his last, like, <laughs> yeah, right? I'm like, oh, his leg must be asleep. He's jerking it around trying to wake it up. <laughs> no, he's dying. He's dying. So early in the inquiry, Cleland said, I would not be prepared to find that he died from poison, that the poison was probably a glucoside and that it was not accidentally administered. But I cannot say whether it was administered by the deceased himself or by some other person. Despite these findings, he could not determine the cause of death of the unidentified man. Cleland remarked that if the body had been carried to its final resting place, then all the difficulties would disappear. After the inquest, a plaster cast was made of the man's head and shoulders. The lack of success in determining the identity and cause of death of the man led authorities to call it an unparalleled mystery and believe that the cause of death might be never known. There are a few more things to tie to this. Mm -hmm. So one is that, like, I want to say this was four months after he died. When did they find this piece of evidence? Um, in 1949, um, I want to say it was like four to six months after he died, they were still examining all of his stuff, right? And in the line of his pants, there was like a secret pocket. And in that pocket, they found a piece of paper and the piece of paper, uh, said Tamum Shud, which, uh, was Persian, I believe it is, for it is finished. Hmm. And that was in a secret mm-hmm. pocket? Yes, that was sewn into a secret pocket in the waistline of his pants. Ugh, I don't like that. Yeah. So it was found to be ripped from a book 
called the Rubaiyat. The Rubaiyat. And the Rubaiyat is, um, it's like a book of poems from Persia by Omar Khayyam from like 1859. So it's like this, from this old book of poems. So it was like really rare. And that was a really <laughs> random ass thing to have on him, right? So they're like, it's from a book. Where's the book from? How'd this get here? How, where did this come from? Who put this here? So a few months after that, this guy um, comes to the police and he said that he found this book in his car. It's called this book called the Rubaiyat. He had never seen it before. I don't know, officer. That's not mine. I don't know how that got there, but I swear to you, that's not mine. Right? There was some uncertainty about the circumstances under which the book was found. One newspaper article refers to the book being found about a week or two before the body was found. Former South Australian police detective Jerry Feltis, who dealt with the matter as a cold case, reports that the book was found just after that man was found on the beach in Somerton. But the timing, they nobody knew anything about what happened in this dude's car because it was unrelated until they found that weird piece of paper in his pants, like months after he died. The timing is significant as the man is presumed based on the suitcase to have arrived in Adelaide the day before he was found on the beach. If the book was found one or two weeks before, it suggests that the man had visited previously or had been in Adelaide for a longer period. Most accounts state that the book was found in an unlocked car parked in Jetty Road, Glenleg, either in the rear fuller well or in the back seat. God, you the theme of the Rubaiyat do not lock their cars or their homes. Weird. What a wild time. The theme of the Rubaiyat is that one should live life to the fullest and have no regrets when it ends. The poems, the subject led police to the theorize that the man had committed suicide by poison, although there was no other evidence to back that theory. The book was missing the words Tamod should on the last page which uh, had a blank reverse and a microscopic test indicated that the piece of paper was the page from the book. Also in the back of the book were faint indentations representing five lines of text in capital letters. The second line has been struck out in fa- a fact that is considered significant uh, due to its similarities to the fourth line and possibility that it represents an error in encryption. So if you look at it, if you look at the letters, it looks like it's some sort of code but nobody has ever figured out what the code is supposed to be. It just looks like a random scribble of letters and some of it's like crossed out. And this is in, this is like, um, when they, they say it's like the, the print from like, it's not actually written in the book. Right. Right. Like Like somebody wrote wrote on on the page before that and then ripped that page out. Mm -hmm. So this is like what was left behind in the book. So yeah, nobody has ever figured out what this code is, what it means, why that piece of paper was ripped from it and then left in his pocket, why that book was left in that car. Some of the other theories speculate that he was a spy due to the circumstances and historical context of his death. At least two sites relatively close to Adelaide were of interest to spies, the Radium Hill Uranium Mine and the Woomera Test Range, an Anglo-Australian military research facility. The man's death also coincided with a reorganization of Australian security agencies, which would culminate the following year with the founding of the Australian Security Intelligence Organization. This would be followed by a crackdown on Soviet espionage, espionage in Australia 
area, which was revealed by intercepts of Soviet communications under the Verona project. So one of the theories is that he was a Russian spy. And they took him out. And they took him out and then left his body on the beach because what the fuck were they going to do with it? Another theory concerns Alf Boxall, who was reportedly involved in intelligence work during and immediately after World War II. In 1978 television interviews, Stuart Littlemore asked, Mr. Boxall, had you been working, hadn't you, in intelligence units before you met the young woman Jessica Harkness? Did you talk to her at all? In reply, Boxall says no. When he asked if Harkness could be known, Boxall replies, not unless somebody else told her. So... Jessica Harkness um, is a lady who's believed to have had a child with the unknown man, and people still don't know who he is. Wait, what? If you don't know who he is, how do you know that she had a kid with him? Kind of a baby with him? Because he looks like him. No, she wants fame and clout. She was like, ooh, you know what? I would love some more money. And I got this baby, and that dude kind of so, looks like a baby. That's my She is the one who supposedly gave the inscribed copy of the Rubaiyat to um, the guy who found it in the car. She's supposedly the one who I thought he put didn't know where that showed up from, Ossifer. <laughs> Right. Like, all these things don't make any sense. This is crazy. Like, he says he doesn't really know where it came from. He got it from this chick. She must have had, like, this one night stand with this guy, but she's got this baby and she doesn't want to talk to anybody about it. But the baby looks like the guy who died, who nobody knows who he is. What? I know. I know. It's all crazy. None of it makes any sense. And there's so much more, like, there's so much to dive into. And, like, I have a lot of information, and I'm just trying to hit on, like, the weirdest, strangest parts, but none of them make any sense. None of any of it lines up. That's insane. That's insane that someone can die or be placed on a beach dead, and no one knows what happened. So they found him December 1st, 1948. They found the suitcase January 14th, 1949. They found the piece of paper in June. Jesus, that took them a long time. Right? Then they did uh, another, like, coroner um, inquest in June again. In July is where they came across the copy of the Rubaiyat that had been found in November. Then they got the lead about Jessica Harkness. Um, they showed her the cast and she was like, yeah, that's the guy who I hooked up I with fucked. that time and had a baby with. Right. But she didn't know who he was. And she requested that her name be withheld because she didn't want to, she didn't want anybody to know about it. <laughs> Even though now we all know. Right. Now we all know. But this was, yeah, this was years and years and years and years ago. So, uh, she said that she didn't want anybody to know, say that she knew this guy, Alf Boxel, and then it turned out that Alf Boxel was alive. She said that he was dead. <laughs> they were like, what is up with you? And then she, uh, in 1950, she married this other guy. She married a guy named Prosper Thompson. Prosper? Prosper. Prosper. In the 1950s, the police lost that copy of the Rubaiyat. <laughs> Stop. Wow. Um, 
Wow. They were like, we ain't figured it out now. We ain't never going to figure it out. Where did I put that book again? They did another inquest in 1958. This was 10 years later. They didn't find any new information at that time. The In 1986, the Somerton man's brown suitcase and its contents were destroyed as they were no longer required because they... By that point, they had that evidence, like, on record, but they were like, hey, I don't think there's really anything going on. This is a 40-year-old case. Taking up space in the warehouse. So we're just going to burn this shit. In 1994, the Chief Justice of Victoria, John Harbor Phillips, studies the evidence and concludes that poisoning was due to digitalis. Um, In April of 1995, Prosper Thompson dies. (laughs) In August 95. Poisoning. Alf Boxel dies in 2007. Jessica dies. So that's, I mean, that's the whole family line. That's all we got. Um, The latest thing that happened is last year, the attorney general granted conditional approval for the Somerton man to be exhumed in order to do a DNA sample. Ooh, I wonder if that would pull anything. We'll see what happens. That would be crazy. that's the Somerton man. Um, nobody knows who he is. Nobody is really, they think, you know, like I said, they guess he died of digit, like from being poisoned by digitalis, but nobody knows who he is, where he came from. Nobody knows the circumstances of his death, why he died, how he got to where he was. Anything. Jesus just came up and he said, Hey, it's your time. You know, when there was only one set of footprints. <laughs> because I was carrying you. Get those clean shoes over here. Let's get them off the sand. We're going to heaven. You just just got those wax. Get them off the sand. Let's go. I'm going to carry you. Get them off the sand. Let me carry you, man. Jump on my back. That's what I do. We'll we'll piggyback this. No, no. I don't know (sighs) you. All right, Sarah. Well, first of all, what did you think of the Summerton Man? (laughs) Um, I thought it was a warm, sunny story. I don't know. The no, summertime I mean, man. <laughs> no, I think it's crazy. Uh, I think for me, anytime I hear about these unsolved murders, unsolved deaths, things like that, and it's in the ninth or it's in the twentieth century, I'm just like, yeah. how, how, how do you not figure this out? How, how does it take you seven months to find a secret pocket in his pants? I don't how. So that always uh, blows my mind. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's crazy. And that's the thing. Like, they kept finding all these different pieces of evidence and, like, none of them seemed to relate to anything else. It's just like they none of them was like, oh, well, that answers that question. It's like each piece of evidence just raised more questions until they were like, you know what? Lose the fucking book. Burn the suitcase. We're, this is unsolved. We're done. We're fucking over it. Burn the suitcase, bitch. It's done. You know, they went out to the back, like that scene in office space when they tear up the printer, but instead they were burning that suitcase. They were like, get this shit out of here. We can't figure it out. I don't even want to look at it anymore. It was just like that. That's exactly it. That's That's history. All right, Sarah, what are you talking about this week? I'm just kidding because I know what you're talking about this week, but talk about it. Yeah, if you guys remember last week, we teased you out, but this week is all about motherfucking Jonestown. 
Bam, 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 Jonestown, bish. Bah, 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 bah. Hey, Stephanie, you thirsty? I got some Flavor-Aid for you. I was going to say, it's Flavor-Aid, right? It's, flavor-aid. it's not Kool-Aid, it's, it's Flavor-Aid. Kool-Aid. Yes, everybody loves that little fact that even though the catchphrase is, you all drank the Kool-Aid, it wasn't Kool-Aid, it was the off-brand Flavor-Aid, which in my opinion is a crock of shit. Because Jim Jones was sitting on millions and millions of dollars and he couldn't even kill his people with name brand. Couldn't Kool-Aid. even get it with legit ass. Couldn't Kool-Aid. even do it with legit. Or was Kool-Aid. it because was it because they couldn't get Kool-Aid in South Africa? But they were able to get the arsenic Kool-Aid. and he was able to get all of his drugs. No, I think they could have right. got Kool-Aid. You're right. They could have got Kool-Aid. <laughs> it's fair. Anyways, before we get all into that. We're going to dive down some other uh, rabbit holes. So I guess, Stephanie, you know about what everyone knows about Jonestown, which is how it ended, right? You have all these people out in South Africa who drink a whole bunch of off-brand Kool-Aid and die. Well, and I know they didn't all do that. I know, like, I know, yeah, there was a lot more to it than that. And I also know that, like, they didn't all drink the Kool-Aid. Some people tried to run away yeah. and they got shot. Yeah. So. Because some people were like, why did they all drink it? And it was like, because the people who didn't drink it got shot trying to run away. Well, so, like, there's, I mean, we'll get into it. There's layers. There's a lot of layers. It's like an um, Or so, November 18th of 1978, over 900 people died after drinking poisoned Flavorade at the urgence of their leader, Jim Jones. And up until September 11th, this was the largest U.S. death that happened because of a non-natural single event. So from 1978 until 2002, this was the biggest death of U.S. citizens that happened not because of a natural event, which is crazy. So unlike other cults, uh, we want to point out that the People's Temple, which Jonestown is the name of the town that they created, the settlement that this group, this church created in Guyana – But this church started in America. This church started in Indiana. And the church is called the People's Temple. Now, the People's Temple was based less in a religious ideology. And People's Temple was based more in political ideologies. The People's Temple were diehard socialists. Every single pun intended. Because I also want to make it noted, the People's Temple is spelled without an apostrophe. P-E-O-P-L-E-S. Because the people's temple is based on sociology, so not any one person owns a single thing. They all equally own it. And putting an apostrophe in there signifies singular ownership. So it's the people's no apostrophe temple because we all in this together, son. The people is already plural. You can have plural ownership. Oh, my God. The people. Oh, you're going to say, oh, my God, a lot. But in the beginning, sure. you're going to be 
down with the cold. I know. I'm like, they're socialists. Ugh, I'm down with the cold so far. Not only socialists, but the people simple was progressive. They were working in neighborhoods mm-hmm. on on integration, racial equality, social justice, and membership was predominantly African American, low income people who wanted to better their neighborhood and their society for themselves and each other. I did know that part. It's based yeah. all Ugh. in things that we are totally. I know behind. it was. It's all stuff that I would be like, oh yeah, I'm into that. Yes. I'm down with the cold so far. Yes. So I want to, and I like flavoring. <laughs> I mean, yeah, throw some ice in there. You got yourself a party going. But I want to continue to point out as I'm telling this story, because I went into Jonestown like a lot of people just being like, it's a cult where a white dude brainwashed a whole bunch of African-American people, took them over to Guyana, and they all killed themselves. Weird. There's so much more to that, and the People's Temple stood for something so much greater, which is why these people did follow it to, to follow it through to the end. That's why they did drink the Kool Aid. They did drink yeah. it because they so wholeheartedly believed in what they stood yeah. for, and unfortunately, what they stood for was also deeply rooted in Jim Jones. Yeah. And like many cults, they might be on the outside standing for something that looks like a really good cause, but at the end of the day, all cults basically form and organize around Around one person. person. Yeah. And in this instance, it's Jim. And that's what makes it a cult. Fuck it, Jones. (laughs) Right? So it's about worshiping the person rather than like the purpose. Now, what's interesting and I, you know, continue to bring it up. And a lot of what I want to do when I tell this is I've got my notes, but it's also going to be a lot of like train of thought for me as well, because I have fallen into this and I've been listening. I've been doing a lot of podcasts, which is how I've been getting my information um, and I want to go ahead and say now that my biggest influence for this week's episode was last podcast on the left um, and mm. their four part series on Jonestown was dope and transmissions from Jonestown, Jonestown, which both of those are on Spotify. They're both incredible podcasts um, about Jonestown. But the one thing I'll say, segue back into the train of thought for the storyline is again these people were so ingrained in this cause that a lot of a lot of people as they tell this story will make sure to make the note that this wasn't necessarily a mass suicide but this really was a mass murder these people did not have to give up their lives they gave up their lives because of jim jones and because jim jones told them and we'll get through you know how that series of events happened that led to that moment but it's because of this one person that they ultimately did quote unquote commit suicide but they never would have felt the need to do that without jim jones telling them it was like because he convinced them and it's that they had no other option Jim Jones had been prepping them 
for this inevitability for years. It came out after the fact that he would run trial runs where they would give people poison or give people like Kool-Aid. One specific instance is later on in the church, he's got two inner circles and one inner circle is the planning committee. And the planning committee is the middle inner circle because they still give a face to the outside of the church. And when the planning committee says, this is the next step we're going to make, the church is like, okay, the heads have spoken. So in one planning committee meeting, Jim Jones was like, hey, our crops in California, our grape fields yielded more grapes than we expected. So we made two bottles of wine. Now, I know I tell everyone not to drink and alcohol is a strict no-no in the people's temple, but we're all going to have a glass of wine tonight because we'll do the, the bounty of our harvest and we'll celebrate. And when he made sure that everyone in the room had taken a drink and had been drinking the wine, he was like, okay, you all have 45 minutes left to live and then you're going to die. That wine was poisoned. Just so he could see how they would react. Just so he yeah. could prep them for that. And at that time, that, that was a lie, right? It was Those a lie. people hadn't been poisoned. It was, a lie. it was just to see how yep. they would react. And at the end, he's like, you need to lay down and die with dignity because if this is what's happening, it's, you know, what's supposed to happen. And this is the point that we're making. It's for the greater good, etc. And he does that trial run with poison, fake poison, multiple times. And he does it, I believe, twice while they are actually in Guyana. So that when the final time hit and it was for real, some people went up there and were drinking it and thought it was just another test. It was just another drill. And then they started seeing their friends and family around them actually die. We'll get to all that. We're jumping way, way ahead. So anyways, not a mass suicide, definitely a mass murder. So back to what you said, 909 people died in Jonestown, but it is believed that up to one third of them, which is up to 300 people, were involuntarily killed. They were either injected with the poison or they were shot and injected, or they were shot. Mm -hmm. Trying to run away. But that still leaves 600 or more voluntary participants. Voluntary people who stepped up and said, yes, I will do this. It's time. It's for the purpose. I can do this. And how, but, and we can't really know because they died, they can't tell us. But how many of those people thought this was just another yeah. test? Well, I think up in the right? beginning, so they did it in waves. So I think in the right. beginning, they the people who went first were like, this is probably another drill. Oh, yeah, this is another test. It's whatever. And then it went. But even on that, I want to continue to express that even as these people were voluntarily stepping up and realizing that they were laying down their lives, there was a reason behind it. They they were kind of brainwashed and they were kind of led astray, but they really believed wholeheartedly in making a difference. 
and in standing for what they stood for. And I think that a lot of times when we talk about cults or we talk about the times that mass suicide has happened, we focus a lot on the end result and we focus on the whole 900 people drank poison Kool-Aid and died. That's crazy. And we don't think about how did those 900 people find themselves in Guyana in shitty living conditions and then voluntarily lay down their lives. How do we get to that point? And that's what I, think, I want to yeah. dive into. With the cults, yeah, it's always about the escalation because it doesn't start at drink this poison Kool-Aid. No, right? It starts burn. with like, we are likely you know, politically aligned. We have like a, let's do this, this good common thing that we both like. And like, it starts so little and little by little, it starts to get crazier and crazier. And when you're so invested, when you've spent years of your life, when you've spent like your life savings mm-hmm. on something in, in this cult, in this group, but you don't think it's a cult, right? Yeah. First of all. No, I mean, you fully but, like, stand for what you've been working for. And like you said, you spend so many years, you spend so much time that for you to think that what you've put, like for your life to now have no purpose and meaning, people can't like, handle it. it. They you, would rather you die. You can't just, re- you don't just realize that, right? Like that's not something, your brain doesn't go there. Like your brain is wired to make it make sense. Which is what we're also, I feel like, going to see with a whole bunch of these Trumpers as things change in four years is they are not going to be able to accept it. They are not going to be able to acknowledge that they're wrong and what they just invested so much of themselves into is wrong. And I think that we also see that in my generation with the kids who were raised in the church and who were raised in these strict church values are now stepping back and acknowledging that, hey, maybe these rules that I was raised with were wrong. Wrong. And it totally trips your psyche. So anyways, side tangent, what I want to get into in this episode, and I'll try to make it short because we're already like really close to an hour. I know. Um, and I haven't even really gotten into it, uh, is I want to talk about how they got there. And if we're going to figure out how we got there, we got to start with Jim Jones himself. Of course you do. And we got to start with him. And one thing I learned about Jim Jones is that motherfucker started out weird. Period. Oh, of started course. Started out weird. You're not- no. So. Yeah, of course. Jim Jones, who is affectionately known as Jimba. To his mom, he Jimba, Jimba uh, was born in 1931 in Crete, Indiana, to Lynetta and James Jones. Now the crazy okay. apple doesn't fall far from the Lynetta tree. <laughs> Lynetta was a nut job, More like Lunetta. Am I right? That okay? So Lunette <laughs> is her birth given name. She changed it a few times from Lunette. To Lynette, to Lynetta. Uh, and we'll get a little bit more into her changing names in just a minute. Now, Jim Jones, uh, Jim Sr., or Old Jim, as the town used to call him, was not Lynetta's first husband. He was, in fact, her fourth husband. She'd already been married Ooh. and run off 
three other men by the time she was, hold up, 25 and married good old Jimmy Jones Sr. <laughs> so Lynetta is fun. <laughs> Jimmy Jr. Sr. Oh, wait, Jimmy Jones Sr. <laughs> I went to Bob's Burgers, Jimmy Jr. <laughs> Jimmy Jr. <laughs> That's who Jim Jones is. Jimmy Jr. All right. So, well, Jimmy Jim Sr. Uh, it was a World War I vet who had had his lungs ruined in a German gas attack, which meant that he now was not only weakened physically, but a lot of the men who suffered that were weakened mentally as well. And he basically yeah. was just boring as fuck as an adult. And he didn't really do anything. <laughs> and he didn't work. He was unimpressive. He was unambitious. Um, however, it helped that he came from money and his family had money. And Lynetta liked that. So Jimmy Sr. spent most of his life at the pool hall just hanging out, being boring, not really doing anything. Being boring. <laughs> they also lived in a dry county, so it's not even like he was getting drunk. He was literally just... <laughs> Boring as hell. He's just shit, just man. Nothing. He's just a shit dude nothing. with nothing to do. So now when Lynetta was pregnant with little Jimmy Jr., she claimed, get this, Stephanie, she claimed that she saw a vision. She saw a vision of the Egyptian river of death, and then she saw herself on a cross. And then she was visited by the spirit of her mother, who told her that it was not her time yet, as she still had to fulfill her destiny of giving birth to a great man. Yeah. Yeah. You have a mom like that? You, you get it? You get up a cold you leader. up a something when you got a mom like that. I mean... Your mom's like that, right? Well, let's remember. That's, that's, Lin that is the mother of a cult leader right there. She was a cult character. Um, Lynetta, she wore pants. She, and the, remember, this is in the 30s in Indiana. So the woman wearing pants. Woo! That's why the lady's a tramp. That's why. She swore in public. She smoked. Oh, and I I love her. I know. So there are moments where you're like, she's the fucking bomb. And then there are moments where Damn you're like, Lynette. of course she created Jimmy Jr. Like, of course. Of course, of course she fucking did. Oh, back to her changing her name. So she was born Lunette. Then she changed it to Lynette. And then she changed mm -hmm. it to Lynetta. But. And then she changed it to Latrine. Latrine. <laughs> Well, it was better than shithouse. Um, it used to be shithouse. The crazy thing about Latrine is she didn't tell people when she was changing her name. But if they addressed her by the wrong name, so if they called her Lunette. She was like, no, it's Lunette. Then when she wanted to be, she's like, no, it's Lynetta. No, she didn't even correct them. She just took it personally and got offended and got huffy. And was just it's like. like um. It's like Cheryl. It's yeah, right. It's Carol. <laughs> Cheryl. Yes. Cheryl. Yes. She she was she was 
a character. That's all I can think of for her. She was a character. <laughs> she changed her name. She didn't She's tell a people. Character. She wore pants. This is the kind of woman who just they said that she wouldn't even talk to people out in public. Even if they talked to her, she would ignore them because she said that they just didn't talk about the interesting things that she wanted to talk about. So she just wouldn't oh, engage with people. Oh man, she this sounds like me. <laughs> was also an atheist who believed in past lives. And she said that she was great and she was a writer and she was incredibly influential in her past life but in this life her destiny had been ruined by pettiness and jealousy and that's why she hasn't done anything great but she did it in a past life you know in a past life i was really cool but i was cursed with being such a bitch in this but life in a past life i was fucking not Princess anything Diana. i can do about it but in past life i was talented i was interesting i was smart but this life it just someone looked at me I weird just, in second I grade and destined it was downhill. to be a petty ass bitch this it. life that's just you know how it happens that's what happened so i bring this up because like i said the apple does not fall far from the lynetta tree and all of these <laughs> things we do see reflected in little old jimmy jr little jimmy jr throughout his life the sense of embellishing stories of telling lies to make yourself seem better Sound of better wanting to <sighs> Not talk to people if they weren't interested in what you had to talk to. Being personally offended for something that actually has nothing to do with you. People would leave the church and he would get personally offended. Of course. because But to be fair, in a cult, if you're rejecting the cult, you are rejecting the leader. True. But in this point, it was like early on in the church. Legit. And we noticed sure, that when he was sure, a kid sure. too. So... From the beginning, mom sets these high expectations. I have to give birth to a great man and sets these expectations up with little old Jimmy Jr. But otherwise, she doesn't want anything to fucking do with him. She does not want to have to be bothered raising him. She does not want to have to She's bond like, with him. You're a fucking perfect man and Go I do that over fucking there. hate you. Go do your great man stuff over in the corner. Don't talk to mommy. That Her stories are on. So. Her stories. <laughs> so little old Jimba is left to his own devices and from the very beginning his own devices were weird as fuck mm -hmm. so I'm one sure. weird thing is Lynetta would not let little Jimmy Jr. inside the house when she wasn't there what so she would lock him out she's like if I'm not home you can't stay out of my room stay out of my whole house so, and she wow. worked on uh, a factory line because Jimmy Sr. couldn't work. And so she was working in the factory and then would just be like, stay out of my house, boy. And Jimmy Jr. would wander the streets and just sort of hang out. And he was oh, taken God. under the wing of a neighbor who was a little old neighbor lady, Myrtle Kennedy. And she was a Nazarene preacher's wife. And she started taking Jimmy Jr. to church with her. And he got hooked. This boy he loved, him, loved some him some church. Now, it wasn't necessarily 
God or the spiritual aspect, but he was in it for that performance value. He was mm-hmm. into seeing how they, how these preachers were able to captivate audiences, how they were able to draw them in. And he used to even go church jumping on Sundays. Church jumping. He would get yes, out. He would start at one church in the morning, skip out before it's done, and go hit another church to see how they ended things. Yes. Oh my Instead God. of bar hopping on Sunday brunch, this boy went church, went church hopping. hopping. Now, that is insane. Jimmy, I mean, that again, we're crazy. just seeing <laughs> That's fair. how it all gets started. <laughs> so he starts from a young age feeling like he's better than other people. And then he realizes he sees this outlet where, oh my God, this one person can captivate an entire group of people who continue to show up and it's so theatrical and it's so big and it's so presentational. And as That's what I want to do. As Jimmy Jr. <laughs> gets again. older, he ends up finding a role model in Adolf Hitler strictly oh, because God. of the performance aspect of it because he's he's a socialist uh, Jimmy is Adolf obviously is is not and so a lot of the things that Adolf but Hitler he like, is stood a passion for, Hitler is a passionate, a passionate speech, giver. speech giver so unsurprisingly if there's one one good thing i could say about the Adolf man could Hitler. give a speech the man gave a speech. The man gave one hell of a speech. He was an impassioned speaker. Let it be known, though, that we here at Dead Time Stories do not endorse Adolf Hitler. We just acknowledge right. credit exactly. where credit Fuck is Nazis due for that. And the American Nazis that are still around that are all up in this shit. And causing trouble. Fuck all them Nazis. That's why I said it's literally the one good thing I could say about him. That was him. it. That's why so many people listen to him. Because they were like, that man gives a good... He sounds like he knows what he's talking about. He's really passionate. And it's crazy because all these Trumpers now... I'm like, really? <laughs> Donald Trump is the one you're going to listen to? The man can't even form a coherent sentence. I know. He sounds dumb. He sounds dumb. Honestly, but I think that that's why they like him because they're like he he's sounds a like us, guy like me. He talks like he me. sounds like me, right? Uh, yes. And with that, anybody who listens to this who's a Trump supporter just turned it off. And good riddance. Good fuck so you. Just like- I mean, yeah, I don't think anybody listens to us as a Trump supporter. But I mean, if you are, sorry, I'm not. I'm not. But just like <laughs> Trump supporters, little Jimba didn't have many friends. Um, Natch. And as much as he was fascinated with church. Just like us, little Jimmy Jr. was fascinated with death. And yeah, who isn't? He would, death is fascinating. He would hold funerals in the neighborhood for the dead animals. He would go scouting out dead animals in the neighborhood. He'd hold funerals at recess. He'd hold funerals in his garage where he would preach and talk for an hour to the kids around. You know why? Because, yeah, I was like, because that meant people had to, like, listen. sit and be respectful and be quiet and listen to him talking. One time, he took a group of kids, like his friends-ish, I'm going to use quotes, uh, on a field trip to the local casket uh, casket maker factory. And he instructed them to lie down in all the coffins so that they could feel like what it felt to be dead. Jesus Christ. So the kids that he mainly hung out with and he would get to go and do these things were a younger crowd because the kids his age were like, nah, fuck off. Uh, But the younger kids were like, oh, my God, this old kid's paying attention to us. Like, he's a big kid. That's cool. So he hung out with a lot of kids who were younger. 
And if anyone sort of left the group or stopped wanting to hang out with them because they thought that maybe it was fucking weird to be sneaking in and laying in coffins, Jimmy Jr. would bully them. And he would just yeah, bully the would. shit Piece out of, of them, shit. which is a trait that continues through all of his life. If anyone disagreed with something or didn't want to go along with something he wanted to do, he took it personally. Very, very personally. Now, he always had an interest in equality. He always had an interest in social and racial equality. And as a teen he began to go out to the black neighborhoods. Now, remember, this is Indiana, so we're talking about bumfuck Indiana. And he would go over to the black neighborhoods and he would stand on the street corner and he would give these sermons, these speeches, and he would talk about racial equality and how no matter the color of your skin, everyone is equal under the eyes of God. And people started to listen. Because Mm -hmm. this group, this neighborhood, not only did they not have white men coming into their neighborhood, but they don't have a white man coming in and talking about how they're equal. Right. So in that, this is where we sort of see this. Like telling them they're good, they're equal, they're worthy of. We're all the same. Yeah, you deserve this. And that's where we see this juxtaposition of he did stand for really good things. And Jim Jones is single-handedly him and the People's Temple responsible for a lot of the integration that happens in Indiana, especially in Indianapolis. And it's insane. But it starts, and it's something so good. And it starts from the very beginning. He talks about equality. Now, we're going to skip a little bit. Um, Well, one more point point on that of him realizing he can stand on the corner he can preach he can talk and people are starting to listen as he's realizing that not only will people listen but him standing up there him getting these people on his side is now giving him a position of power so on top of the juxtaposition of these are really good thing that's good things that are happening he's also realizing now me doing these moves me up in to more and more positions of power gives me more and more power and hold over people. And again, that's another thing that we will see traverse through his timeline. Now he leaves high school. His dad dies. Mom has left dad. That's a whole backstory we could get into. His dad has the like saddest epitaph on his gravestone. It's something of like, all of the world are my friends or some shit like that. And he's like buried alone. (laughs) And on his gravestone, he put Lynetta's name, like under the hopes that she would be buried next to him one day. Oh my God. She died in Jonestown before the suicide murder, but she died in Jonestown. So that's just really sad. He leaves high school. He's not really into church because, again, remember, he was never really into it for the religion. His mother was an atheist who believed in past lives. She raised him with that mentality. As he got older and he had more of a following, he used to talk about, in a very derogatory way, what he called the sky god and how he had no respect for the sky god. Um, So he really, you know, had no interest in the church. And so he begins, he takes a little detour 
before we see him dive back into the church life. And while he's on that detour is when he meets his wife, Marceline. Now, Marceline is his one and only wife. She does follow his lead in Jonestown, and she does end up passing in Jonestown. Though it should be noted, and it will be noted multiple times, that while Jim was Marceline's, as far as we know, only partner, only husband, Marceline was not Jim's only partner. She was the only woman that he ever married, but that homeboy fucked around. And that'll be something we get into next episode. I can't even hit on that right now. So in 1948, Jimmy Jr.'s graduated high school. He gets a job as an orderly at Reed Memorial Hospital in Indiana, Indianapolis, Indiana. And he was great at it. He was apparently fucking great at it, and he loved doing all the jobs that no one else wanted to do. He cleaned out the bedpans. He moved the dead bodies down to the morgue. He'd moved the amputated limbs down to the morgue. They said (laughs) that he was known as being the orderly who could make sponge baths fun. Uh, He just had a real knack for it. And again... I'll keep tying this into his history and what leads us to Jonestown. He realizes that these are jobs that other people don't really want to do. But if you show up and you do them with a smile on your face, you're going to move further than someone else who shows up and doesn't. And you're coming in here and you're showing empathy to these people. You're showing that you care. You're going to catch more flies with honey than you are with whatever, vinegar, etc., Yes. And so, once again, he's uh, picking up the shit duties, but it's going to move him further along in the long run. And that's where he met Marceline. Marceline was a nurse at the hospital, and she came from a family that was slightly well off, but that also had political influence in the state and local politics, which comes into play later again because Marceline helped Jim out with the politics scene. But they met, which I think is so, excuse me, so fascinating and weirdly, like, ironic. But the two of them met when Marceline had to go down and dress a body to go to the morgue. And what orderly would be there to help her but good old Jimmy Jr. Jimmy Jr. And so the two people who orchestrated and were the leaders for a group that ended up killing 900 met over a dead body. They sure did, and it wasn't the first time. It was the first time, but it wouldn't be the last. last. So she, the full disclaimer, though, for her, I'll say about Marceline, is she was not on board with the mass suicide. She loved Jim Jones. She essentially was his first follower. She was the first one to really drink the flavor aid. I hate to keep using the phrase, but, like, it's... It's applicable, and I feel like it says what it needs to be said, but she did not stand for the suicide, even though she ultimately fell from it. Now, back to good old Jimmy Jr. Jimmy Jr., again, was a diehard socialist, and he wanted equality, and eventually he found his way back to the church and back to the pulpit, because he felt that that was how, that was the best way that he was going to get his message out, is by getting into the churches. By speaking to the people, yeah. And 
Also, it just so happened that in 1952, it aligned really well. The Methodist Church released a statement where they reformed to a more progressive creed. And there was his in. So he started working with the Methodist Church. And he saw a need. He saw an opening. Most people go to church and they want something. People go to church because you're looking for help. You're looking for relief. You're looking for solace. But you ultimately show up, you pray, you get a hug, and then you walk out the door and you don't have any tangible change. Jim Jones right. said, I want to create a tangible change. We'll call it a church, but I want to actually physically help people. And one example that they would give of when they first started their first church was they do, um, the congregation would come in and he'd be like, all right, who has a problem? Who has a problem? And one woman uh, said, hey, I've got the electric company will not come out and fix my, fix my electricity. I've been writing them and writing them. My bill is paid on time. But she was an African-American woman and they weren't listening to her. So the church got together and they started writing letters and they wrote letters until the electric company came out and turned on her power. And there's a tangible thing that happened in the church that helped. And now you've got a lifelong follower because they showed up and they had a problem and it was fixed and it was solved. Yes. And with that, they're like, I... This is great. It helped me. Now, I let- came to this church and I had this problem and they fixed it for me and they can help you. They can help like, you, you and can I'll- my church because And yeah. I want to help you and I want to be a part yeah. of this. And so again, this church was there for me when I needed something. Like I'm I'm here. I'm in it. I mean, that's it's it, it, it all sounds so good. I get it. I get it. Yeah. I have a problem. You actually gave me a fix. You didn't tell me to say three Hail Marys and go home and take a dump. Like You actually gave me something that would help me. I'm in. I'm sold. I'm down with the cult. So Jim begins a path to the socialist society he has envisioned. And it doesn't matter that he has to use the sky god to get there. And one of the main ways he found his way in was by doing revivals. Stephanie, I know you're from the South. Have you ever been to a revival or are you familiar with what a revival is? I j- uh, not really. Like I know it's a it's a church thing. I went to a lot. Uh <laughs> it is like it's it's like It is a church it's thing. It's like circus church. Like they put it in a tent outside. It's that's what I thought. I was like, I, it's like church, but you do it in a tent and something. And, I don't know. And it's like to the nth degree. Like the music is more vibrant. The preachers are more loud. That's usually where you get traveling evangelists, evangelists who come in, and that's where you get that loud, abrasive preacher who's gonna preach fire and brimstone and scare you to salvation. But it's also where you see a lot of. Faith healings. You get your faith yes. healings at revivals. So revivals were really where young evangelical preachers could practice their tight five until they were ready to move up to an it's actual church five. venue. I fucking hate you. And get their hour-long special. Ooh, so they worked wow. their tight five at the revival Before they would get that, you know, that HBO or Netflix special. Before they got they that to... Vegas church residency, they had to go do their revival <laughs> tight five. <laughs> so. You got to get that tight five. So you Jim know? Jones starts doing the revival circuits. Now, 
the one thing you and I both know is that these faith feelings, I'm really sorry, people, they're a crock of shit. It's nothing but sleight of hand slash plants in the audience. But when you're just starting out, you don't have plants you can put in the audience. You don't have people that lie for you and be like, I'm crippled. Just kidding. Throw the cane. I can he dance. me. <laughs> you don't have that yet. So what Jimmy <laughs> Jr. would do. You know why I've loved, I have loved researching this. Like, I wish I could make up these story points. All I can do is embellish them and make them funnier. And there is so much material. So what little Jimmy Jr. would do in the beginning is he would use his powers of basically being like a psychic in the sense that he would just go around and listen to people and pick up. And remember, he walks by a crowd and he's like, oh, Mrs. Weathers just said that her back has been bothering her. Tuck it away. Later on in the sermon, he goes, and I see that there's a a Mrs. Weathers out there. Now, Mrs. Weathers, you don't have to tell me, but the spirit is telling me that your back is causing you problems. And they're like, oh my God, this preacher is psychic. This preacher knows everything. And that's how he started. Of course. And then the healing began. So once he started to bring in a few followers, then he was able to have plants in the audience. And what he would do is he would say... "Uh, Brother Powers, Brother Powers, you got that cancer in your body, Brother Powers, and I am going to pull it out of you. I am going to pull it out of you, Brother Powers. Now I ask you, please, please take yourself to the bathroom and you need to evacuate this cancer. And he would tell them to go and take a shit and shit the cancer cancer out. out. And they would leave with a nurse, another church member. And be like, I just took such a poop. I think my cancer's gone. Well, they would come back with proof. So they would be gone for a little while and then they would come back with this stuff in a napkin and it was chicken liver and chicken parts and some blood all in a napkin. And they were like, I But they'd be like, this is the cancer I just pooped out. This is the cancer I just passed. And then Jim Jim Jones would be like, well, now that cancer, that cancer, I protected you from that cancer, but that cancer in that rag right there, that is so infectious. No one else can look Look at it. No one else can in- inspect it because I cannot promise that I can protect you from that cancer. So then people wouldn't look at it. They would just be like, they came out imagine, with a bloody rag. I assume that that's the cancer. believing in someone so much that you would lie about shitting out cancer. So... The reason they did that is, again, because these people were having actually good things happen. And when all they're seeing all of these good things, they would let this bullshit slide. And that's part Mm. of the reason of how we end up at the end is because you do have a lot of people who aren't there because they're invested in Jim Jones, but because they're invested in what's been done. And so they're like... We integrated all the restaurants in Indianapolis. Sure, he wears sunglasses inside. I don't know. We just let him do it because look at all this other good that's happening. And that's really what it was. It's so wild. So he would have 
people pretend to shit out chicken parts, and that was cancer. <laughs> and call, and it, call cancer. it cancer. Um, and <clears throat> shortly after doing the revival circuit and starting all of this up, he then split from the Methodist church. So he was no longer associated with the Methodist church. And he struck out on his own. They were like, get your chicken liver shit now out, of, out of this church. It's unclear what exactly happened to make them split from the church. We've got two different stories. But anyways, he split, struck out on his own, and he opened his first church storefront in 1954 in Indianapolis called the Community Unity Church. And this church was integrated, and it was made up mainly of an African-American group that was low income. Now, though... Again, though this is all the catalyst ultimately for the People's Temple in Jonestown, let's not forget the good that Jimmy Jr. did do for integration in Indianapolis. And they did integrate a lot of restaurants. And what he would do is kind of genius. He would show up during lunch with a few members of his congregation and they'd be like, you need to get out of here. We don't serve black people here. And he would say, well... I'm kind of a prominent member of society. I think you really want to let them eat here or else I'm going to stop coming. I'm going to tell other people to stop coming. But if you integrate this. I'm kind of a big deal. But if you integrate this restaurant, I will bring a crowd and fill your restaurant during lunchtime. And he would specifically go during their down hours and be like, look, there's no one in here. I could fill this restaurant for you if you would just integrate. And they were like, well, shit, I like money. When you put it like that, white man. I guess I'll do this. I guess I'll listen. So, it, like, again, I'm just like, he did these things and I'm like, that's kind of like, that's kind of genius. That works. But they were still a new church and they still needed to make some money. And so in the beginning, one fun fact that everyone loves to bring up about Jim Jones is the fact that he sold spider monkeys door to door to make money in the be- few, like the beginning door years. To door, door to door, you door monkey sales. Spider monkeys door to door. I've never heard such a thing. Right? And they were reasonably priced, too. They were like $28 a pop. $28 is a steal at twice it's the price, even in the 60s. for a spider monkey. Um, my favorite, and I wanted to find the audio to play on the episode because I really would have loved for you to just hear the way this woman tells this, but I couldn't find it in time before we recorded, so I'm just going to have to say the quote in my best impression of her. But... Jim Jones, again, was gaining followers, and even doing his spider monkey door-to-door salesman, he was able to gain a few followers, including one woman who later gave a testimony on PBS about how she first met Jim Jones. Buying a spider monkey? Well, not her. She said, the first time I met Jim Jones was Easter 1953. My mother-in-law had a monkey, and it hung itself, and she wanted to replace the monkey. What? (laughs) And she loved Jim Jones, and he sold her a monkey and also told her to come to church. And so I went to church with her, and she became a lifelong follower. Yes, the monkey hung itself. The monkey hung itself? And that's her. Like, I don't want to laugh because it's so terrible, but that's also the most 
absurd thing I've ever fucking heard in my life. Like, what happened to that monkey for that monkey to be like, I can't fucking what do happened? it anymore? Was it on purpose? I don't know. It Was said it like, hung itself. I don't know. I don't know. Stephanie, when I listened to that quote, I died. I, I so... fucking died. What? My mother-in-law had a monkey and it hung itself. And so she was hung looking itself. to buy a new one. Also, so she, maybe she shouldn't get another monkey. I don't know. You drove a monkey to fucking hang itself. And, I don't know if you should get this It makes monkey. me think of Tucker and Dale versus Evil. She's like, these monkeys just keep killing themselves on our property. So, yes, I really wish I had that. If I find that audio later, I will send it to you. But it was so good. So. Wild. At this point. Fucking wild. Jim was gaining real followers, true believers. He was making strides in social equality movements in Indiana. And he was growing out of space. So in 1956, he bought an old at an old building that was used originally as a Jewish synagogue. Now the word temple had been engraved into the side of the building. And since little Jimmy Jr. was creating himself a socialist church and expanding, he also decided that the church needed a new name and he renamed it the people's temple. And we'll pick back up with the rest of the story next week. So that's the beginning of Jimmy Jr. and the People's Temple. And next week we'll get into how what ultimately looked like this beautiful, progressive socialist group suddenly became a weird sex thing, weird abuse thing, money laundering. And they ultimately ended up in Guyana and drank poison flavor aid. So we'll get into that next week. We're going to hear how it spiraled to that point. Okay. Spiraled out of fucking control. So there it is. Okay. I know that's a lot. I was like, I might not even be able to finish it next week. This might be a three-parter because I haven't even gotten into the conspiracies. It's a fucking ride, right? (laughs) I'm like, should I even have a story or should I just let you? I don't know. For part two, should I just let you take over? We'll think about it because this is a lot, right? But oh my god, I'm I am into. I know it. it is a lot, and like I want to give you space to do it, but I also like you know, yeah. I'm like maybe part two. It's like it's, it's just, just you this. the whole episode. Well, tune in next week, listeners. Then you'll realize what we figured out. You know, you're gonna fucking see what happens. It's gonna be wild. And we know what we know what ultimately right. happens. Like 909 people die, but. We're going to hear how we got to that fucking point next week when Sarah does part two of Jimmy Jr. and Jimmy Jr. and the Jonestown Massacre. The Jonestown Massacre. Sounds like a weird punk rock band name. What a wild episode this has been. Um, Good luck editing. Good luck listening, y'all. This this might be our longest episode we've ever done. Probably. This is probably our longest episode we've ever done. You're welcome, everyone. Yeah, you're welcome. And if you want to support this long ass show, uh, you should do so many things. You can support our Patreon, which we have $1, $5, and $15 tiers. It's absolutely amazing. It's the best Patreon you're going to join for a dollar a month. Come on. Easy peasy. We have a fantastic Facebook group Ugh, that you get to yes, join for a dollar a month, as well as the incredible 
prizes, the incredible rewards that go up from there. But that Facebook group is like one of my favorite parts of Facebook. It's such a good time. But it is a Patreon exclusive. Then we also have merch at our website, Deadtime Stories, all one word with a Z, dot com. And you can email us at deadtimestories at gmail.com. We love that shiz. Mm -hmm. And of course, we understand times is hard. It's 2020. There's a pandemic going on. It's almost holiday time. We get it. If you're pinched for pennies, the best way you can help us out that doesn't cost you any money at all is to give us a five-star review on iTunes. Leave us a review. Tell your friends to listen to us and tell your friends to leave us a review. It'll be a good time for everybody. And then you'll be helping out the show because that's the little algorithm that gets us new listeners. I mean, we might be a two-star content show, but we want you to make everyone think this is five-star content. We want you to do like Sarah would do for me. And be my reference if I need to yes. say that I worked for yes. you. Be my reference if I need to say you were my landlord and you're going to say she's the best employee I've ever Absolutely. had. She she's never the best rent. Um, you know, tenant I've ever had. Like, whatever you need me to be. That's what I need you, the listener, to do for, for our show on iTunes. I don't care if it's two-star content. I need you to be like, five stars. This is the best goddamn podcast I've ever I'd listened to. I'd give it to. six stars if I could. exactly that i love that five out of five would recommend yes but that's it that's my spiel that's it thank you guys for hanging in there if you're still listening tune in next week for more shenanigans thank you for listening welcome back leslie i hope i hope you all are getting what you want both out of our podcast and for your holiday season (laughs) yeah and out of life life and everything that's it that's it that's it for me we appreciate you we're proud of you all right, everybody. I'm Stephanie. And I'm Sarah. And, and this, this has been, been Dead Time Stories. Thank you for listening. Dead Time Stories is hosted by Sarah Heddens and Stephanie C. Ferguson. Music and editing by Eric Gershnow. Artwork by Rennie Slackman. 